51 years ago, our guest was in the last segregated graduating class at South Girard High School. He's now the top judge in Russell County. It's a success story. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome to the Chuck Williams Show. We're continuing going. We have not been canceled yet. Uh, this we've been doing. This is the tenth episode, I believe, maybe the eleventh. And we got a special guest today. We got a. We've had lawyers on the show before. We got a lawyer out of Alabama. We've got uh, Judge Mike Bellamy. Mike is the Circuit Court Judge, the Chief Circuit Court. Presiding, presiding, presiding. I got chiefs over here. Yeah, you got. We got chiefs on this side of the river. We got presiding over there. Mike's the presiding circuit court judge in Russell County. He has been involved in the legal system over there for almost forty years, or more than forty, right? More than forty. Well, Mike, welcome to the show. I'm I'm looking forward to this because I know you fairly well. I've covered you over the years, and. You're a guy who knows a lot about a lot of different things. So, you know, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Chuck. I look forward to it. Well, we'll and I, do- ho- I hope they don't cancel you after my interview. Okay. <laughs> well, I think they would. If they were going to cancel me, it would have been after the. Uh, well, never mind. We won't even. Okay. Go there. All right. Okay. But, but but Dylan wanted to cancel me. Uh, Bob Jeswell just walked by. Bob's getting ready for potential severe weather tonight, so you could there could be an interruption if we have some bad stuff moving in. Um, look, I want to start. You, Mike, you're approaching seventy years old right now, right? I just had a birthday and turned sixty nine. So, you live in one Phoenix city, but you grew up in another one. I mean, you graduated from South Girard in nineteen seventy, right? That's correct. That was the last segregated class in the Phoenix City school system. I mean, talk about that a little bit. My experience at South Girard was just wonderful. As a matter of fact, we just had a um, book done about the years at South Girard uh, from the student from the beginning till the end in 1970. Um, great experience. Had gone to Mother Mary Mission Elementary School. Believe it or not, talked to one of my teachers today from Elder Mary, Mrs. Ethel Ash. Uh, still doing wonderful things in the community. Went to South Girard in the ninth grade. Was very blessed, had very nurturing and caring teachers. One who inspired me in the ninth grade by the name of Agnes Lowe, who taught Alabama civics and history. Had never met a lawyer in my life. Got a chance to hear about a guy named Albert Thompson, who was running for the legislature. At the time, that would have been about 66. And she talked he was about a lawyer over in Columbus. That's correct. Talking about his campaign. Had not met him personally, but was inspired. Is that, you know, you talk to people about high school, and one of the things that we're, people like you that have been very successful in your career, sometimes that fire is lit in high school. I mean, the, the, the inspiration, the, the, desire the drive. To do something. Definitely was. Uh, it was in ninth grade when I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. had no idea what it entailed or had never met one personally, but I knew it was something I wanted to do. I thought they made lots of money. And I also thought they did something to help other people. And that's what I was inspired to do. And you were right on both counts. We still try to do that to this day. Did you, when you, the family you grew up in, did anybody have a a higher education degree? (laughs) No, neither of my parents graduated from high school. Neither my grandparents or great-grandparents. Lived in a two-room house. My uh, mother was a domestic worker uh, most of her life. 
she also was a cook. As a matter of fact, uh, I didn't realize until after she had passed, she actually worked at the Elite Cafe. She was actually cooking the day and had worked there the day that Patterson got killed. One of Which her he was shot right next to the cafe. That's correct. She had worked at it that day. And one of her friends, um, Mrs. Luckerson, is still living. And she said, Michael, did you know that? I said, no, I did not know that until after my mother passed. And she well, you'd love to be able to have that conversation right uh, now. Well, Mom was another inspiration to me. She believed in education. And she also believed, I mean, you got to realize, she sent two boys to a Catholic school. I mean, we didn't always have money to pay for the tuition. But it was always about trying to better yourself and always trying to in, encourage us to do and, and get as much education as we could. And I think that's the history of bettering yourself if you grew up black in a segregated South. Education was the key to that betterment, right? It was indeed. Um, having grown up in two-room house to two-room house, uh, you know, my whole desire, we never owned, my mother owned, never owned a house, and my desire was to build her a house one day. Unfortunately, I never got a chance to do so. But uh, she passed away when I was in my uh, second year at Tuskegee. And, um, you know, it's, you know, I had, she had lots of friends and other people who kind of took me under their wings after she passed. And I had grandparents that were still living. And you know, I still got the nurturing and the concern and the love that I felt I needed to grow to the man I am today. And, you know, when you look at, and I know quite a few guys, black guys of your age that have, been very successful. You, I would put Dr. Hugh Ogletree in that class. I know he's a dear friend of yours and a friend of mine. You know, and one of the things that I've noticed, I mean, obviously I have no idea the back, I have no idea how to have come out of the the situation. I mean, I was born in a family of privilege and I know that. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, when I look at y'all, I see these people that have this incredible drive, but I see people that, like you, I would say you have a very crafty intelligence. You're smart, but you're also street smart. Does that make <laughs> sense? Uh, I, maybe to some extent. I, I understand what you're saying. Another good friend of mine who, who came from very humble beginnings, who was a super guy, uh, Billy Jackson, I used to talk about it. What if we had been born with everything given to us? What kind of men would we have been? And there were some black people who had substantial you know, resources, and they had children, and they left substantial amounts of property and what have you, and their children did not necessarily do as well as some of us thought they may have done. So Billy and I have always said, you know, you know, maybe the Lord knew what he was doing, and you know, we were blessed, and we always had the idea we had to work for what we got, and, and that we always uh, had a great work ethic, and was always concerned about helping to bring others up, too. So when you got out of South Girard, you stayed in a segregated learning environment because you went to Tuskegee, right? Well, you know, you got to realize, Mother Mary, I had white nuns. So it wasn't like I had not had any interaction with, okay. with, with, with Caucasians. And also, when I was in high school, I worked at Woolworths on Broad Street and uh, had a manager by the name of uh, Mr. Wolf, who was a white manager of the store. And he gave some wise counsel, too, even though I, you know, I was an employee. He gave some encouraging things about working, work ethics, and also about saving money and investments, you know, even in, in high school. Were you listening to him at that point? I listened, but, you know, I didn't always take all the advice. <laughs> Had I did what he said, I would, would have, um, I would be much better off financially <laughs> in regards to saving some of what you received, even at an early age, which I would encourage a lot of young people to do. 
So you go to Tuskegee, how away from home for the first time, how was Tuskegee a life-changing event? Oh, man. Uh, the life-changing experience came in a program called Oward Bound. In the 10th grade, Miss Agnes Lowe told me about Oward Bound. She said, Michael, you need to go to Tuskegee, this program. It'll help you learn about going to college. I said, Miss Lowe, I can't leave my job. That's how I pay for my clothes and all those things and whatever. When you're in high school, you want to buy those new clothes and I remember the gold suede coat bought at Metcalf's and what have you and all those kinds of things. And she said, well, Michael, you know, if you go to college, you'll make more money. And I thought about it and thought about it. And I went to Upward Bound for that summer and fell in love with Tuskegee for six weeks. Got actually paid for going to school. Uh, I was in 10th grade, got to 11th grade, continued the program. And Mr. Wolf gave me my job back when I came back in the fall. I mean, from, you know, from, from the summer program. So I was blessed in all ways. So I had my job back when I came back to so that summer, those six weeks in Tuskegee opened your eyes to a world outside of Phoenix City. Well, I mean, it's the first time I ever saw the ocean, first time I ever saw a, a live play. Um, Upward Bound, we went on tours to other campuses, went to the Atlanta Youth uh, System, and Tuskegee in itself and living in air-conditioned air dorms, which we did not have an air condition at home where I lived. And uh, it didn't hurt that they have some the most beautiful nursing students in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, – I've, I've yeah. heard – you know, I know a lot of Auburn football players spend a lot of time at Tuskegee. Well, I can believe that. Um, you know, in, you look at Tuskegee and the, the, the history of the place, it just absolutely is the essence of history, American history and black history. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's part of the National Park Service. Uh, of all my children, uh, none of them decided. I think I took them to Tuskegee too much. However, I have a granddaughter uh, who's in Atlanta who I took on a tour of Tuskegee a couple of weeks ago, and she is seriously thinking about attending Tuskegee University. And it just gave me the utmost pride to be able to give her a tour of that school. As my dad will tell me, intelligence usually skips a generation. So, um, uh, so you you would you would love to see you would love to see your granddaughter go to Tuskegee. Well, I, I try not to force it upon anyone. I just think it's an option, and if she chooses, I will be most supportive. I've had uh, one of my granddaughters is going to attend uh, Savannah State, and I'm just as proud of her as I am, and I'm proud of all my children who went to school, but they chose not to go to Tuskegee. And uh, that was their decision, and, and I'm, I'm proud of what they've done and how they're doing. So while you were at Tuskegee, you were still saying, I want to be a lawyer, right? I certainly did. Uh, it, I was blessed in the sense that after I went that my sophomore year, I actually attended Tuskegee my senior year of high school. I got accepted in what they call the early entrance program. So I started high, I mean, started Tuskegee my senior year, of, <laughs> senior year of high school. I started Tuskegee as a freshman. That was before online courses. That's right? before <laughs> online courses or advanced courses and what have you. Yeah. So, so, and how old were you? Uh, in 1969, I would have been 17. 17. So then. So I went to college before I graduated from high school. <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty good, man. That's okay. Yeah. Okay, we've established who's the smartest one in the room, Dylan. Now we'll move uh, on. And I'm going to tell you something. I, I make this admission to young people. You know, I was very blessed and made good grades in high school. In the first semester at Tuskegee, I learned a lot of things that had absolutely nothing to do with high school. Staying up all night, playing all kinds of cards, still like to play bed whist, dirty hearts, and uh, did a few things, drinking and some other things I probably shouldn't have done. When I came home that first semester, and, and during that time, your grades went to your parents. My grades came home, I had a 2.00 average. So you had a solid C average. You know what mom told me? 
And I told the people in court today, you know, you're the youngest, you're going to always be the baby. She said, baby, don't feel bad. All the rest of those kids graduated from high school. It had absolutely nothing to do with me not having graduated from high school. It had all the things to do with me not going to the classes I should have gone, staying up and not preparing like I should. I was too embarrassed. Never told mom what had happened, but I came to my senses. It's kind of like the prodigal son. I came to my senses, started doing everything I needed to do, and every semester thereafter, I made the dean's list except two and graduated with departmental honors, uh, not with a full three-point, but departmental honors, and uh, was very pleased. Uh, you know, I was able to graduate and get accepted into law school. You know, and I think that's a, something you see right now with, and it's been generational. It goes back, you're, I'm a little younger than you are. I'm 10 years behind you almost. And you look at it, we had trouble, folks. I, I had some of the same situations <laughs> you had, and, you know, but I had an advantage. My at Troy, I went to Troy, and, uh, the bar we went to was the standard chem chemical company, and the beer store was the filling station. And when I came home, my dad wouldn't know why I was spending so much money on gas. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I didn't have the situation with a car, but uh, we had the Black Forest, uh, and we also had the Commodores who were playing. Believe it or not, they were not big time at the time. They they were they were students. They you were, were there students. at the same time. That they Lionel were ahead. They were ahead of me. Indeed, they played at uh, all kind of little joints around and what have you, and. Um, so you uh, saw the Br Br Brenda Hari was in my class. She was a major <laughs> Lionel's wife. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you were you were of the era at Tuskegee where you saw the Commodores when they were just a club band in East Alabama. Yep, I did. Did what'd you think? I mean, they were good. It was. I mean, I mean, it was great. You know, and uh, you know, they'd be playing at Black Forest, and I can't think the name of this other little club it was down the street from this whole the. Uh, trail I lived in, and it was right there off campus and what have you. Did you ever think that Lionel Richie and that band would become the voice of a generation? And they did. They became the voice of a generation. Indeed, they were. Uh, they were all very talented and, uh, and, and, and very gifted. As a matter of fact, uh, I think Lionel's music, who the lady who taught Lionel music taught me uh, music in my freshman year <laughs> yeah, at Tuskegee. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and Lionel Richie and that band crossed all the barriers. They they pop. I mean they they became they became a band that was universally accepted in music, right? I Indeed, mean, yeah. And that anywhere you go, you can you can hear some some of those old songs and whatever. And Lionel's still you know on TV to this day. What's your favorite Commodore song? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> no, I won't say I won't pick one particular one. I did a lot of dancing off some of those tunes back in the day. That, and so you Three know, times a lady was a good one. Yeah. What? Three times a lady is a good one, yeah. Three times a lady is a very good one. And you know you don't think about that till you get to be your age or my age. The the greatness you were around when it really wasn't greatness. And I mean, you know, I was fortunate as a very young sports writer to cover Auburn some, and I covered Bo Jackson and Charles Barkley. I had no I knew I was seeing something good, yeah. but I had no idea what I was seeing. Uh, you, you're right. Uh, I recall being a student at, in law school at Southern in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and going to the legislature trying to make an appeal for some money as far as law school, and uh, football coach of Groundland was there, Eddie Robinson. 
that was like, wow, here's this person. Yeah. Who was producing more NFL players. Yeah, he was time. the Nick Saban of his day without the, without the Alabama yep. Yep. machine. So you go to Southern. So now you're moving a little further away. You're getting down there and you're getting down there in Cajun country. Did you, did you like, did you like Louisiana? Love Louisiana. Almost took a job in New Orleans as an assistant district attorney. And uh, one of my best buddies, who is now a retired judge in, in, in New Orleans, his dad had bought an uh, office bill, I mean, a house on Elysian Fields. He said, Mike, you need to come. He was, I, I was kind of like his little brother. You need to come down here and practice law with me. And I came home. And um, after that experience, had enjoyed it, but not nearly as much as undergraduate, I assure you. But uh, Southern's Law School definitely prepared me. My dilemma there was I thought I was very smart, had done well in law school also, and didn't prepare for the bar exam. And uh, But I was fortunate enough to come here and get a job at the district attorney's office. So did you take the bar more than once? I took the bar several times. It did not pass, and then I was able to pass. Uh, had a very wonderful uh, spiritual advisor and, and, and um, kind of like a godmother in my church family. And um, I never forget Mrs. Mabel Ware. Very inspirational, inspirational person, Bible teacher. I went to, used to go to Bible class when I was in ninth grade in high school. And uh, when I go ready to take the bar, she says, Michael, she said, I'm going to pray with you. We had a prayer. And Pastor Carker, my pastor, who's still at Franchise to this day, she had a prayer with me. She said, Michael, she said, uh, you're going to uh, take the bar. She said, you're going to pass the bar exam. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, you're going to be judge in Phoenix City. This is 1970, what, 69? No, 70, 79, 78, 79. I said, yes, ma'am. I take the bar exam, and guess what? I pass, and she gets to see me become city judge in 1982. Wow. The power of prayer and what the Lord can tell other people that may be in store for you. When you came back and, and took a job in Phoenix City, was Billy Benton the DA when you took the job? Billy Benton's father, Bill Benton, was the DA's district attorney at the okay. time. Okay, yeah. Mr. Benton. Mr. Benton was the district attorney. Uh, George Green was working as assistant district attorney, and uh, Tom Estes was an assistant district attorney. Yeah, yeah, great experience. And that was before uh, Kenneth Davis was in there. As a matter of fact, Kenny and I took the bar the last time. When I took the bar, Kenny and I took the bar together. He was in law school in, at Cumberland. And I went to, with him to uh, stay with him prior to coming back to take the bar exam to uh, take a bar review course at Cumberland. Stayed with Kenny Davis, came back. He, and I, he came to work in the district attorney's office, and he and I passed the bar at the same time. You know, in, as an aside, I'll get the other um, – I believe this is right. Kenneth Davis is arguably, I mean, some people think he may be the longest serving district attorney in the history of the country. I mean, that nobody, really? yeah, there, there's some people that I know it's, I know he clearly is in Alabama, but he's getting, I mean, that's a long time. That is indeed a long time. I mean, district attorney is a tough job. Would you agree with that? I would definitely agree. It's a tough job. And, uh, I, I, We'll never forget, um, I've been on some state committees with, with the court system and what have you, and I remember telling one chief justice, if I were the chief justice, I would make it mandatory for every district attorney in the state of Alabama to leave that particular district he works in and go ahead and defend a capital murder case in some other county because you do get a totally different perspective when you're on the other side. And, and I love Kenny. Uh, matter of fact, when I left the DA's office, I asked him to go into practice with me <laughs> when I left. He said, no, it wasn't a time. And uh, you get a totally different perspective. And I think sometimes we can stay too long. I'm not saying Kenny stayed too long, 
but I've encouraged him and I both to retire. <laughs> well, he's prosecuted a lot. He's prosecuted more than his fair share of death penalty cases. That he has. And, that, and he's done it all over the state, I suspect. Yeah. In the same sense, we as judges, I have, as a matter of fact, I'm going to take a case in Chambers County that the judges have recused, and I've gone to other counties too. That's part of giving the service. But he's been a prosecutor everywhere. But mm-hmm. I'm saying it, 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 it helps to have a different perspective. You know, and we'll get into the legal system in just a minute and, and talk about kind of your thought. But you came back home rather than stay in New Orleans. Exactly. Um, uh, first time I questioned your sanity in the whole thing. Uh, um, but you know, you I'll tell you another little story. When I was in law school the first year, they asked you, what do you want to do? And in my essay, I want to go back. I want to pass the bar and practice law in Alabama and Georgia. The professor reads that to the whole class. He says, my God, one of those is bad enough. <laughs> and the whole class cracked up. And I actually had it. I've, I've done a few cases here in Georgia, too, before I you know, became on the bench full time. Yeah. So you were a city judge. I mean, when you came back to Phoenix City to practice law, how many black lawyers were there in Russell County? Uh, practicing at that time... <laughs> Somewhat on a regular basis, probably only Sanford Bishop, if I'm not mistaken. Sanford. And he was coming across the river. But mm-hmm. ba- based in Russell. There was no one with an office in Russell County. No, you were the only time. one that had a, literally had an office in, in the county. Uh, James Curtis Bernard came in, but I think it was not. It was after I had, had been practicing, as I recall. James Curtis Bernard. So you were two decades removed from the Sin City stuff when you came back. A little more mm-hmm. than that, probably two and a Twenty-five years removed. How had Phoenix City changed in the seven, eight years you had been away? Considerably. I I had no idea that I would have been offered a job. Uh, I, I really talked to some lawyers. Uh, had no offers as far as going into practice with anyone at that time. Was blessed that I was able to get a job as, as an assistant DA, and had a wonderful uh, experience with the um, persons who had experience, like Tom Estes and George Green who became uh, friends uh, for life, George and I, definitely. Um, just great mentorship in that regard. Um, I guess not having been involved, I guess, socially a whole lot when I was in high school with, well, I, I'll take that back. When I was in, worked at Woolworths, there was a young man who was Caucasian. I can't remember his name, but he was uh, at Central. And we talked about things we were doing, like preparing for prom and that sort of thing, but not really going out with anyone and having any regular relationships with them. You know, it's race has always been the elephant in the room. Oh, by all means, by all means. I mean, and it's being dealt with now. Indeed, indeed. (laughs) And we're at a time of reckoning, I think, right now. Why do you think we've been so slow as a society, particularly in our southern part, to to deal with race, it head head up. I mean, head on. First of all, change is difficult. You know, people get accustomed to things being a certain way, and then people, it's just, it's just difficult. Whether it's church or whether it's, you know, in in one race, you know, if you change something that's been done some way at the church for fifty years, it's, it's hard to change. Uh, this pandemic's made a change as far as how we do a lot of things, and it's difficult. And um, you know, people get comfortable with what they are familiar with. Part of our dilemma is that we're not familiar with each other enough to be able to be comfortable with each other, and that's what we need to work on. And um, you know, as far as me personally, uh, I guess having nuns and and and, and, and that, that were Caucasian who taught me uh, 
I didn't have a sense of fear or anything. It was just a matter of people being people. How did the nuns at Mother Mary Mission shape you? Uh, the nuns um, just tried to make sure that we did the right things, and and and, and uh, you, you learned religion at, at Mother Mary. Uh, I also was involved in my church at the same time. A lot of my classmates converted to Catholicism. I did not, but I enjoyed being a part, and I enjoyed learning about you know uh, Catholicism. Uh, but I was always a, a Baptist. I went to a uh, franchise as a child, and uh, it's, it's been a wonderful experience. You've pretty much had the same preacher your whole life, haven't you? Uh, pretty much. He didn't baptize me, but uh, he's been there since I was a teenager. Yeah. And we're talking about Reverend Cochran. Reverend Cochran. Johnny Cochran. Cochran. Uh, not, well, not, not Johnny Cochran. Not Johnny Cochran, Ray, but uh, Raymond Cochran. Raymond, I, I, yeah, sorry, I'm yeah. in the legal. Well, he, he says he's related. I don't know if that's <laughs> the case. Yeah, but he does a wonderful job and has really grown our church over the years, and has been a wonderful uh, pastor, mentor, and friend. So, what kind of cases did you do early? In your career, other than the DA stuff, when you you know, even when, when I was not a member of the bar, I would prepare cases. I was able to do preliminary hearings. Um, I remember Judge Call was a circuit judge, and uh, he would allow me to you know assist in trials. You know, even before I became a member of the bar, um, so I have done the gamut: child support, uh, juvenile, uh, murder, rape. Uh, I remember the first case Kenny Davis and I tried together as uh, attorneys was involving a sexual abuse of a child, and it was the uh, the, the defendant was the father of the uh, child. And um, Kenny and I were trying that case together, and that uh, was a conviction. And uh, we didn't lose too many back in that day. You know, it's interesting. You talk about the incest case, and, mm -hmm. and I can pretty much cover anything. And I've covered, I've like, as a journalist, I've covered a lot of court stuff. But I will tell you this: I've covered two cases of mm -hmm. the, of that nature. I can't do it. I mean, I won't go back in the courtroom on one now, and because I just can't do it. I, I it just I mean I hate when you harm a child, but somebody that's there to protect that child harms that child in that way. It, it just I get too angry. I get too emotionally charged about it. And how do you do that as a judge? As a judge, uh, your job is to, you know, make sure things are done, you know, fair and impartially. Uh, I just tried one that was terrible, terrible, terrible. I'm not finished with it, so I, I can't discuss that particular one. But as a prosecutor, I remember leaving Tusk and leaving Phoenix City going to Tuskegee. And I was like the, the DA there. There was no assistant mm -hmm. other than myself there, and we had grand jury. And, and the person testifies as to what occurred. And the, the, the district attorney generally makes recommendations. A young lady who was about 12, 11, and she came in front of 18 people and she said that Mr. So and so did such and such and such and what have you. And I believed her. And um, my boss, believe it or not, says, I don't think they're going to believe this child over the man. I said, Sir, I said, if she's willing to come and sit at the table and her mother's allowed, willing to be there with her, I will sit with her in front of 12 people. And the butthole, believe it or not, pled guilty. She didn't have to do that. He pled guilty. So I think it's important that those cases be heard. And I believe in the jury system and the ones I've heard and I've seen tried, uh, knowing what the penalty could be, particularly if it's a child less than 12 or less than 6, I mean less than you know 12 or what have you, the penalties is, are substantial. And I make sure that the defendant knows what he's looking at or she's looking at if they're convicted. And that's the decision they have to make. And I believe that just the jury system does a pretty good job in, in trying to discern whether it's 
occurred or whether it has not occurred. How, I know if you look, I know jaded journalists, I know jaded police officers. How, how do prosecutors and judges not become jaded as well? I pray a lot. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not out loud praying or what have you, but, you know, um, for patience, uh, for wisdom, for guidance and direction. And try not to, uh, you know, prejudge anything and listen to all I have to listen to. And some of the things we, I have to listen to and see are despicable. But that's part of the job. I signed up for it. I heard a murder trial in Columbus last week. And, you know, I'm sitting there and you know, I just guess I mentally didn't prepare myself for it. And all of a sudden, boom, on the screen are the, are the crime scene photos. And it's like, you know, I mean... I've seen some things I really did not want to see, and you know, but that's part of the job, unfortunately. It's it's a great job, and it, being a judge to me is you're elected, so the people put you there. Um, you got appointed twice by two Republican governors, believe it or not, <laughs> Bob James, yeah, and he appointed uh, you district judge. That's correct. And then who appointed your circuit? Oh, my God. Uh, Governor. Uh, not Hunt, was it? No. no uh, just he didn't make the full Riley. Attack. No, not Riley. Uh, <laughs> oh, the Tuscaloosa guy. Yes, yeah. Okay. Very kind to me at the time, yeah. He, and then you, but you since been elected. I've been elected um, without opposition each time. Thank God. That's the best way to run. <laughs> but I ran <laughs> once and lost, too, though. I ran in 96. Who beat you? Uh, Al Johnson. I ran for an open position after Judge Miller retired. And lost the election by less than 100 votes. As a matter of fact, people out of town called me to congratulate me for winning. I said, no, I'm sorry. Another box came in and I lost by about, you know, 70-some votes, yeah. And then now Judge Al Johnson's son, David. Yeah, David is, serves on the bench of circuit David judges. is a circuit court judge, mm -hmm. as you are. I mean. David is circuit judge, and Judge uh, Collins is the district court judge for family court. And Judge Walter Gray, I am blessed to have some wonderful judges who work with me. If, if But for the number and the, the quality of the judges, I probably would have retired. How does it break down over there? And I, I know in in Columbus uh, or in at Georgia, Superior Court judges, which is the equivalent of you, handle divorces. District Court judges, the lower-level judges, mm -hmm. handle them in Alabama. There's a, there's a different well, way some of the loads divvied, right? Yeah, well, the, well each circuit kind of does things a little differently, but it's up to that particular circuit. We have what we call a family court judge, not one that was designated as such uh, by the legislature, but by um, order of the presiding judge at some point in time. And the family court judge handles all of the domestic relations situations involving juveniles and also divorces and what have you. So custody battles. Custody so. battles, yeah, any domestic situations. However, the way it's done now, if Judge Collins has a situation where he has to recuse, Judge Gray automatically looks at that case. If there's a reason he can't, then I can look at it myself or reassign it to uh, Judge Johnson or myself. And on occasion, there may be a situation that involves someone that all of us may recuse. And there was a young lady that had a case. It was not um, domestic. But, for example, she worked in the system, and she had a case pending, so all of the judges re recused. And then the uh, state sends someone else in from uh, Department a Alabama Administrative Office of Courts to hear that case, and the judge comes in. So that happens on occasion. 
to me the tough some of the toughest work judges do is juvenile work it is indeed in my opinion the most difficult work but it's the most can be also the most rewarding because you have children uh judge collins truly has a passion for what he does uh having done that and knowing that it can sometimes burn you out I've encouraged him to take some time off sometimes. I've also asked him if he wanted to change or me hear some cases or what have you, but he helms it quite, quite well. He, I mean, he just really has a passion for it. When you do the juvenile work, you have to really do some soul searching because you've got to decide if you can help that kid rehabilitate himself. That's correct. Right? I mean, your decision could – what you do and where you place him, the time, things mm -hmm. that you do on a juvenile case, I mean, you could take him and if he ends up in prison, basically put him in finishing school for criminals. Well, you can you can decide whether or not he's treated as an adult as opposed to being treated as a juvenile, which means he could be definitely from, without even going to juvenile court because depending on what the offense is, wind up in the state penitentiary for a substantial period of time. And the thing about the juvenile cases in Alabama, and I know this as a journalist, is protected. I mean, you allowed me to come into a proceeding when I was working on something else with you. And you allowed me to come into a juvenile proceeding. I, you made it clear I was not reporting everything I saw in that proceeding. I couldn't talk about the names, I think. That was several years ago. I can't remember what it was. It had been a long time because I hadn't done juvenile in quite some time. It would have been right remember. before you went to the circuit bench. I think I was working on something, and I was going to interview. I was working on a story, and you, you said, come in. I can't remember the whole thing, but I sat in on a juvenile case for about two hours. But I didn't report it. This was back with my newspaper days. I'm trying to remember the whole thing. Um, there was You're probably the only report I've ever had to come into juvenile court that I can recall because that's yeah. very unlikely, highly unlikely. And But, you know, because – I can't remember what it was. It was you sure it was me or was it Buster? Just no, it was, no, it was you. It was okay. no, it wasn't. It wasn't Judge Landro. Okay, it was. It was you. I'm pretty sure it was you because I don't remember. I, I'm trying to remember it now. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's the thing about getting old. You forget stuff. That does happen. <laughs> <laughs> Keep having um, birthdays. Yeah, yeah. Better than the alternative. You, you know, have you ever seen some of the kids you have done the juvenile oh, cases with that have come back in the system in a bigger way and some that have come back and said, thank you, you helped me get on the I had a young man who was in juvenile court. And also, if you're under 21 in Alabama, we have what we call the uh, youthful offender statute, which is kind of akin to your first offender statute here. He'd had a juvenile record, and it actually involved a theft involving a gun, and I really feel seriously about guns. And that particular young man... Um, had been sent off by Judge Collins. And believe it or not, uh, he was up for another offense that he would, he, he, he turned, I guess, 17, or, or he changed the age situation. He became an adult, charged an adult, as an adult within six months of the first offense. And I'm saying, well, I said, I don't know if I need to give this kid a youthful offender or not. And I thought about it, but he had, a whole, he had done extremely well at the facility Judge Collins sent him to. Everyone at the facility sent letters of recommendation. He had extended family members who sent letters of recommendation. And um, Judge Collins had monitored him for a substantial period of time. And I grant the young man youthful offender status. He graduated from high school. He 
he went off, went into the uh, United States Marine Corps, and he came back and said, hey, Judge, I just came by to let you know I'm doing well, and thank you for giving me another chance. On the same note, I've had people who uh, I've tried to do that with and what have you, and they get youthful offender or they were juveniles, and then they come up again in the adult system, and I see them time and time and time again. So it can go either way. Yep. It can go either way. And that, that's the perfect segue. That one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about tonight is crime. We've got a crime problem in Columbus. You've got a crime problem in Phoenix City. You've already had more homicides over there this year than you had all of last year. Would you believe we have pending now, probably to be tried, 30 murder cases in Russell County? And 30. There, and there are 80 pending. Mm-hmm. 30. I'm just going to ask it, and I don't know either way to ask it. Go what the hell's going on? People are gone absolutely berserk, in my opinion, and I think we have to do a better job in the black community in trying to steer young men in particular to other places other than gangs. Uh, the gang I was in when I was in elementary school was uh, the Boy Scouts. Um I guess the gang I was in in, in, in um, high school was the Future Business Leaders of America, the Library Club, and what have you. We have got to get involved with young people and let them know that there are some other alternatives. It's going to take the uh, church community, uh, the professional community, persons who have been successful to be around other young persons, men in particular, young, young men in particular, to let them know there is another alternative. Um, you know, if persons don't see anything or see any success, they don't know what success is. If they don't know how to do it, you know, and, and it, it's, it's a phrase take- they use in the military, what right looks like. You have certain people that are drill sergeants or mm-hmm. ranger instructors. To you show- have no idea. Um, people have no idea. I remember when I became a municipal judge and everybody wanted to interview me and I'm saying, my God, I got to go to work. I don't I need to be interviewed. Then I didn't realize it, but, you know, somebody could see an attorney or a judge and realize that, hey, I can do that, you know. Uh, and, and in my own church, there was a young man who was, when we started, Dr. Curtis Fleming, who was a great guy, who was a physician, uh, we started, he started a scholarship uh, at Franchise, and we had a committee of persons to look at who would get scholarships. And one young man who I had no idea was observing what I did in his essay said, I want to uh, go to Tuskegee, I want to go to Southern University Law School, I want to come back, and I'd like to practice law with Judge Bellamy. I'm saying, wow. I had no idea he was looking at me. And guess what? He went to Tuskegee. He graduated from Tuskegee. He went to Southern. And guess what? He graduated from law school, and he's practicing law now in Florida. Eric McCrary. You don't know who's looking at you. But he, I mean, he, he, he grew up in the church where I was, but I had didn't talk to him on a regular basis. But we're the best of friends now. Yeah, you know, and those are the success stories. Unfortunately, you deal with those that are the f- – the, the flip side of no, that. No, I deal with the others, too. I mean, um, I, in the course of my being judge, I never forget, when I stopped being um, a juvenile court judge, we have some programs and some people who help with juveniles. One is TEARS, uh, which is uh, they do mentoring and tutoring for young people. They try to provide mentors and tutors. And Miss Walton, who does, has that program, does a great job. She said, she said, Judge Bellman, I need your help with one. I said, what's your name? She said, I got this young man. He really is smart. I really need you to come try and help with him and what have you. 
He had been in foster care for a substantial period of time, and uh, I, I went and I tried. I, I talked to him and went to him and, and took him to my house, tried to show him how to do different things, and he had, um, had issues and what have you. He was being um, um, living with a, a relative who was not old enough and mature enough to handle him and tried to assist him and what have you. And tried to do all I could, you know, and, and, and brilliant young man, just right as he could be, but could not, didn't, couldn't, couldn't get, that get never to reached him. him, never reached him, got into additional trouble, you know, went off and when he went to a boot camp, went to see him in boot camp, he graduated, came back proud as he could be, tried to encourage him to do some other things and what have you, nope, but that's tried to still do it. But during the same time, had a young man at church who one of the youth directors said, judge, uh, you need to talk to him, he's very shy. He's very smart. He reminds me of your son, but he just didn't know how to, you know, communicate with people. Started mentoring him, trying to talk to him, trying to do the same things, showing him how to uh, give a work ethics, try to show both of them how to do lawn service and what have you, to help me with my lawn, spending time with him and what have you. He went, he graduated. He went to Troy, graduated, and now is an officer in the military. Okay. Both single. I mean, he was a, came from a single-parent home also. That young man did. So what's the, what's the, What's the trigger? What makes one go and one not go? Chuck, I, I don't know. Um, but I think it's our responsibility to try and give them the option and give them options and, and try to give them t an opportunity. The last young man, when he called me the last time from jail here in Columbus, I said, I'm sorry, I can't do anything to help right now. I said, when you get out and you're serious about doing something with your life, come and talk to me and I'll be glad to sit down and see what we can do. But if you keep, as I told a lady today, if you keep allowing someone and keep encouraging someone who's doing things that are improper and inappropriate, it's called enabling. And I told him I just couldn't do anything to help him make bond this last time. So sometimes you have to stop until they come to themselves like I did when I was at Tuskegee my first after my first semester. No matter what you do or no matter what anyone else says, you can't make, it, make that decision for them. There has to be a personal reckoning. It has to be a personal reckoning. Grandpapa put it this way. Every tub's got to sit on its own bottom. I've never heard that one. I'll, never heard that one. You got to be responsible for yourself. Uh, my, my grand, my grandmother's saying was talking about somebody that had a propensity to lie. Said he'd rather climb a tree and tell a lie than stand on the ground and tell you the truth. Well, my mother always told me, and I told I had a young man today, and I do specialty courts on Tuesday afternoons. And the question was whether or not he had had any alcohol or drinks since he had been in this program. And that's his issue. He's, he was in veterans court. He says, well, those I don't think I have. I give him a drug test. Well, I did drink something Friday, whatever, whatever. He comes back in. I said, young man, I said, I really have to pray hard when I know somebody's lying. Because my mother told me this. Michael, I don't care what you do. If you tell me the truth about it, we can handle it. And I told him, when I first became judge, and I had a blessed clerk in Max Wilkes, and someone knowingly told a lie to me, I gave him twice the fine I could legally. And Max <laughs> said, Judge, you can't give him that. That's too much. <laughs> yeah, but it God, really still Max, bothers me. Oh, man, Max, Max was a prince of a guy. I knew, him, through, I knew him as a softball umpire not, and a city councilor, not as, not as the clerk. Yet. Max, Max was a great guy. Indeed. As the use the rec center or not rec center but the center's named center. after him, yeah. And, yeah. and then Max was on the Parks and Recreation Board. And the other thing I would encourage young people, professionals. I know it's hard sometimes, but you need to be involved. I was on the Parks and Recreation Board for a substantial period for a period of time. It's all about giving back to the community. What do we do about the gang problem? 
What do we do about the game problem? Talked to Coach Slater uh, a couple of months ago. Told him to call Miss Goodwin, and I called her and told some folks that maybe Columbus should try to get together and come up with a proposal of its own. The sports council would be ideal to do so. Uh, we've been blessed to have folks who've done this for years and years. Colonel Jim Jackson, who's a great mentor, a, a, a tremendous asset to this community to this I mean, day. Years ago, I remember midnight basketball. Oh, yeah. That was targeted exactly. the kids that are getting in trouble today. Mm-hmm. Kids yeah. need something to do. Yeah, And the thing about the, the football game, Tuskegee Moore House, it needs to be back. It would be a great thing. 75 years is a long time. Um, where else can our high school kids get a chance to go to a college football game? Well, they get to Fort Valley Alabama State now. Yeah, and Tuske- and Clinton thinks that it is something, too. But tradition is hard to, to beat. It's going to be missed, and, but I think if the sports council would get together. I think um, they could probably come up with a proposal with the city of Columbus to try and get make a bid for it anyway. I don't yeah. know. It's all you about are, money, you, though. Money, money seems to drive a lot of things it these does. days. Columbus and Phoenix City are connected at the hip when it comes to crime, aren't they? They are indeed. I mean, we just had a situation, I think, that occurred this past week where someone left Phoenix City and drove over here. We've had situations where persons who've left Columbus and drove over there and committed crimes as, as they were fleeing and what have you, and uh, it happens on a regular basis. And as in the course of my career as a judge, I would have people who, matter of fact, I had a call today from a lady, um, Mr. Judge Bellamy, uh, my nephew is over in Columbus waiting to come back over here in Phoenix City. I said, well, ma'am, I'm not sure when he'll come back, but I don't think he's coming home until he sees the judge after he leaves Columbus, and it happens quite often. Do the communities work well enough together to try to solve that problem? I think we're blessed to have, I, I don't know the new police chief, but I've heard nothing but good things about the police chief here. But I'm really, I think we're fortunate to have a, a, a great uh, police chief in Phoenix City and, and, and Smith. And Talking about Ray Smith, Ray Freddie Smith. Blackman's the new police chief in Columbus. Yeah, I've not known him personally, but I've heard nothing but good things about him. And I think they do have a good working relationship overall. I think that's very important. Um, and, um, you know, I, if, if, let's say it's bad now. If they didn't, it would probably even be worse, in my humble opinion. It could, it could always be worse. I want to flip, I it's bad. flip gears. You were heavily involved in the Tuskegee Morehouse Classic. You just brought that up a minute ago. Yeah. It's gone now. Last year would have been gone COVID. But uh, after 75 years, it was the granddaddy of the – the historically black college and university mm-hmm. classics. The mayor, the mayor of Birmingham, sort of came down and took it. Well, he may have come down and and, and, and took it. Morehouse was the home team for last year, and they can decide where they want the game to be played. And again, it's about dollars and cents. I think the mayor of Birmingham may have oversold, even though they said they had a contract. I never saw it. Uh, and then I, I saw that when he brought the proposal to the county, to the city commission, they tabled it. And I think he may have been blessed. He may have been ble- one of the people, few people blessed by COVID because he didn't have have to have a game. I'm not saying that's a blessing, but uh, <laughs> I think he offered more than they probably could have delivered at that point in time. Now, whether they've signed a contract this year to play it, I'm not sure. I've not been involved in it as I have in the past. But uh, I think, well, and, and, and I must say, Coach Slater and, and, and the Tuskegee family indicated they felt that the way the committee was treated as a whole was not pr- proper and appropriate, and uh, they acknowledged that. But, uh, you know, 
you had volunteers who did this for years and years and years. Yep, for sure. Uh, you and I both married over our heads, um, and but both of our wives uh, are, are school board members. That You're, is correct. Um, and they seem to want to stay on the school boards. What is it about school? What is it about education that your wife is Florence Bellamy, who's on the Phoenix City School Board? What is it about uh, education that keeps pulling her back into being a school board member? Florence really has a genuine desire to help other people, and I think she sees that as one way that she can. Uh, she, all of our children were encouraged to go to college and go to you know and what have you. She was always involved, um, you know, as a band parent. She helped with the band festival and always encouraging, always at all the meetings. I think it's just a genuine desire to try, try and help. And uh, she did it for 25 years without any compensation. And she got encouraged by a lot of other people in the community because of her experience, having not only been the on the board here but president of the board previously and president of the state board uh, at school board association. Uh, and, and she kind of enjoyed it, so I encourage her. But I'll tell you this, the first campaign, the hardest campaign I ever worked in in my life was my wife's. You know, judges aren't supposed to be involved, but, you know, if your wife's at a campaign event, you got to be there. So I was there, and, and she was blessed cause, to win. Because that was when Phoenix City went from an appointed board to an elected board. That is correct. Which one do you think's better? You know, judges aren't supposed to have opinions. <laughs> I'm going to leave that to Miss Bellamy. <laughs> but I think she would say probably that the elected school board is better. Yeah, You're directly re responsible to the people. Yeah, Should judges be elected? Uh, I have no problems with judges being elected, but judges should be elected at nonpartisan elections. Georgia has nonpartisan elections. Alabama, I have to declare a party. I think that's terrible. And you run as a Democrat. Ran as a Democrat. I told Governor Fobb James, I thought I was just as qualified to be Attorney General. If he wanted me to run for Attorney General, I would seriously consider changing to the Republican Party. But if I was going to run for District Court Judge in Russell County, I would have to run as a Democrat. And Russell County is a Democratic county now. It is, but we have recently elected one countywide person of Republican. That's only one. That's the first time in history. Who is that? Ms. Naomi Elliott is the uh, tax, tax commissioner, commissioner. Yeah. and she ran as a Republican. I That's didn't cool. realize that. Wow. And she didn't win overwhelming, but she won. Yeah, but it, it, I think people are wise enough, and hopefully. She's, mm -hmm. And she's been very successful. I mean, she's, right. she's a competent person in what she does. And I think people look at people locally more so than party, you know, but, you know, uh, I've just not been confident in the fact that I could secure my position if I had run as a, a uh, Republican. What do we do about the partisan divide? I mean, you see it in your county. You well, see it in your state. Some of my good best friends are Republicans. Uh, I think one of the reasons I probably got selected by the, each uh, judge, I mean, uh, Governor Bentley and and, and um, Bob is James is because uh, I had a cross section of support from the uh, Republican community also. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, but we're in an incredibly partisan divide right now. What do we do about that? try and listen to each other and realize that even a clock that does not move is right twice a day. <laughs> it's true. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, interesting. It, I've, 
I've never seen anything like what we're dealing with right now. Certainly, it's difficult to cover as a journalist. Um, it's got to be difficult to navigate. I'm 10 years older than you. You know, having grown up seeing George Wilder stand in the door at, at, at uh, you know, seeing that. Uh, Lester Maddox was governor in Georgia, seeing that. I don't know. It's just a different scenario. You, and this may be a part, too partisan a question, but it is just deflect it. But was President Trump, did you see the similarities with President Trump and Governor Wallace? I had the occasion to um, sit on the dais with Governor Wallace before he died. You know the last time Governor Wallace won the election, who elected Governor Wallace? The blacks of Alabama. That's correct. 1982, and he beat Emory Fulmer. Mm-hmm. And as a mm-hmm. Troy State University senior, I did my internship. In, in 1970, campaign. in 1968, I think it was. Uh, when did Lurleen die? Uh, hold on. Whenever Lurleen died, and we had an assembly at South Girard for Lurleen Wallace. And the reason we had it was because Mr. Lord A. Bowie was the principal at South Girard, who had been principal down in Barber County and who knew George Wallace personally. But you got to realize, if you look at history, when he ran in 56 against Patterson, he had the support of the NAACP. And you know and what he, the word was, that he would never let anybody out hate certain people, him again. So I think he did what he, was, he felt was necessary to get elected. I don't I think mean, he necessarily... And one of the last things that Governor Wallace did when he left office was appoint Governor Patterson to the appellate court. Mm-hmm. He kind of went full circle. I mean, I worked in that 82 campaign as an really? intern um, at, at, at Troy, and I'll never forget it. It was one of the most interesting things I've ever seen. I was in Walker County, Alabama, up in Jasper, mm-hmm. and it was a Wallace rally, and they rolled Governor Wallace onto the stage. The whole time Tammy Wynette was seen stand by your man. Mm-hmm. And that was her home area up there. And there was a reporter from The Guardian from one of the British newspapers. And I was standing beside him. And he said, blacks voting for George Wallace makes as much sense as Tammy Wynette seeing stand by your man five husbands later. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and that always stuck in my head. Well, you know, I think I think polit- some politicians do and say whatever they feel is necessary, expedient at the time to get elected. Um, however, what you do on a, a regular basis, I think, uh, is the reality of what the person is. Um, whether or not George Wallace was sincerely remorseful for what he did, uh, I don't know. But I, I didn't know him personally. But he looked very – I felt a lot of um, – I guess, sympathy for him the last time I saw him when I was on the dais with him at a Democratic meeting and what have you. And I always think about what the scripture says, you reap what you sow. Assassin's bullet will probably give you a lot of time. Well, just miss the mark. You know, his claim to fame was he stood in the door of the University of Alabama and said that um, segregation now and forever. And, you know, in his last days, he couldn't stand at all. And what I try and tell a lot of young people, all those people who cheered George on, all of them are not dead. And all of them have not had a change of heart. That's why we still have some of the issues we have today. 
And some people don't like for me to say that, but that's the truth of the matter. A lot of those sometimes persons, the truth hurts. A lot of those persons have had a change of heart, you know. And I've seen some, and I know some people who were actually at the rallies, and I know they have not, and I know some who have had some serious change of hearts. What do you say to those people you know that haven't had that change of heart? Well, you can't change people. All you can do is let them know that, uh, you know, grandmother used to tell me that you can kill a person with kindness. I was municipal court judge for 14 years. You're reappointed every two years. There were certain city council members that never voted for me, who never told me why. And it was quite evident to me that I could never be of the right color for them to support me. But one of those persons who never voted me later in his life, he didn't say anything. He just came to me and told me he was a Christian and he was doing certain things and he wanted to just say how he was doing and what he could do and what have you. And I think in his own way, he was trying to say, hey, I may not have treated you like you should have been treated. Wow. Maybe. That's um, and you got to realize, um, even when I became municipal court judge, the judge was making one salary. They gave, offered me the position, but you know what the city council did? They cut the salary in half. I almost didn't take it. And I had to say to myself, you know, how do you get judicial experience but by being a judge? And it was, it was a bitter pill to swallow. That's never happened to another person who's been a municipal court judge in Phoenix City since. So why would it have happened to me? And, and let me give you another one that, you know, we had a, um, we have a state judges meeting and um, several seasoned judges like myself were asked to be on a panel about our experiences growing up as young black men. You know, some, several were older than me and maybe one was a slightly younger. And one of the experiences I told them, and I didn't get to go to the conference, but I've been asked to be on the panel again to speak to another group of people statewide. My first encounter with law enforcement was when I was working at Woolworths on Brawl. Lee's drug was across the street, and I bought a camera, Polaroid camera. And I was waiting on Brawl Street for the bus to come on the corner. And a person came by in the car on the corner, headed toward Phoenix City. My camera on my shoulder, they stopped. I said, Mike, you want to ride? I said, yeah. I started running with my camera on my shoulder, and a police officer stopped and pulled a gun on me and said, Halt, whose purse you got? You know, I halted, thank God. He didn't shoot me, but he pulled a gun up. That's my first encounter with law enforcement. But everybody's not the same way. And you have to realize it. You know, and I realize even to this day that police officers have to make decisions quickly. But uh, you know also that uh, sometimes they, you know, make some wrong ones. And, 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 but all police officers are not the same. That was my first encounter. How'd that shape you? It shaped me. <laughs> it got my attention, first of all. I felt terrible because I hadn't done anything, but uh, that was just a reality in the '60s. Mm-hmm. In some ways, that but you don't, but, a lot. but you don't forget it. There's certain things you don't forget. Uh, grand, grand aunt, great aunt took me to Birmingham on the train. Sister lived across from a drugstore. I'm big enough to go across the street to get a coke. I go get the coke. I sit on the stool. And the man tells me I can't sit there. I'm saying, why can't I? Well, you can't sit there because you're not supposed to. Yeah, that's just the reality. That was the reality as a child, small child. It doesn't make you feel good, but you have to realize that, you know, 
Hopefully things have changed. How do you get to where you are now without a chip on your shoulder? Because I know, but for the grace of God, I, I could be on the other side of the bench. I was not by, by any means the smartest kid in my class. Um, I've been blessed. Uh, I've had some difficult times, but my good days have been way outnumbered my bad days. And I've had a lot of people praying for me, a lot of people encouraging me, uh, both black and white. And people are, you know, people are people. And there are good people that are black and good people that are white. And I think you may remember the story you asked me about in Russell County. You know, I used to tell you, you know, we elect good folks, black and white, bad folks, black and white. Y'all are equal, equal opportunity in that in that regard. That's correct. You know, and it's interesting. By any measure, a man or a woman who achieves presiding judge in a county the size of Russell County has had a successful career. I mean, by any measure, that's a successful career. Do you feel like you've had a successful career? I feel I've been blessed to be able to do what I do. I've been blessed to have a lot of good people who work with me. Ms. Connie, my judicial assistant, uh, Tommy Powell, who runs my uh, drug court, all the staff who works in drug court, the judges I work with today, uh, the mentors I had when I was a young attorney. Um, people, experience truly matters. Um, got a wonderful clerk in Jody Sellers. It makes my job a whole lot easier. Um, again, I know, but for the grace of God, it could be a different way. Well, this hour has flown by, Judge Bellamy, and we're here with Mike Bellamy, the presiding judge in Russell County. We're at a point now, and, and I'm, I'm really interested because I have not warned you about this. Right. I call it turn the tables. Right. Um, I've been asking you questions. Mm -hmm. You get to ask me one. Um, you know, is there anything you'd like to throw at me right now? Well, one thing I wish you would do, and, and I tried to get my clerk to call you. We started out uh, um, trials before you did over here in Columbus. Uh, I think sometimes you all don't realize that we are actually carrying on uh, judicial work over in Phoenix City. Unless it's a major, major crime. But, you know, it was difficult during COVID. And we've been very blessed to have persons who come out. Who We actually have a grand jury meeting this week. The problem we have is that we don't have facilities large enough to have, you know, massive, you know, trials or it, it would be it's, it's possible, but it would take a substantial amount of time to go through all the jurors and all the things you need to do for a, a murder case. But it's going to have to happen at some point in time. And uh, y'all need to look at what we do over there and see how we do it. We do. And, you know, one of the issues from the TV standpoint mm -hmm. now, y'all don't allow cameras in your courtrooms. Well, you know, we don't. And I agree and in that regard. But we, we'll let you peep in and let you whatever at certain times, but not during the course of the proceedings. But, you know, our well, situation is not like Lee County where we have a room where you can actually observe without it interfering. We're shooting in the middle of courtrooms here. I, I wish I wish y'all would reconsider but that. But you know what we're doing now? If, if, in fact, we have one, we, we have a system set up where we can have a place where everything would be live streamed out to another place if there's a situation where we have to have, you know, a lot of uh, spectators or, or visitors. Love, Love to that. see that. Well, we our guest today has been Judge Mike Bellamy from Russell County, and we're now at a point in the show where I thank Dylan Hansen, who's been our director. Dylan is a Russell County guy, and he's been sitting here listening intently. And we have been very fortunate to have Dylan running the board on these shows, and he does an amazing job. Well, the Chuck Williams Show is every Tuesday night. You can see it on WRBL.com live stream. 
Also, coming soon, and Dylan, are we getting closer on this podcast, Audible, and uh, Spotify? You'll be able to get the podcast. Yeah, I was told that we'll be hopefully within this week be talking about it and hopefully up by next week, but that's all in the year, so I can't say anything like cemented yet. But but we're moving toward that where you'll and and hopefully you'll be able to get the whole library, right? Yeah, the entire library will all be there on Spotify, Audible, Apple, um, and maybe SoundCloud. I don't know. And if you want to follow Chuck Williams, you can obviously follow me here at WRBL.com where I'm a reporter who deals with everything from COVID to courts. Uh, You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Chuck Williams. Been there since 2008. Uh, you can get me on Facebook at Chuck Williams, WRBL, and also on Instagram at Chuck Williams, 0999. Well, we've reached the end of another Chuck Williams show. And again, Mike, thank, thank you for being here. Judge Bellamy, it's been an honor. I think you've been very candid and greatly appreciated. And Thanks for the opportunity, Chuck. And I want to tell everybody, as you go through, be safe. But above all, be kind, because you don't know what kind of baggage the other guy's carrying right now. You've been listening to The Chuck Williams Show on WRBL.